Remember, we're walking through the Lord's Prayer because we are trying to unlearn and relearn how to pray. We're trying to unlearn powerless habits of prayer. It's frustrating uh, to pray and then not see any answer, and yet we don't see an answer, and then we keep praying the same way, thinking that something is going to change. So we're going to push aside powerless habits of prayer, and we're going to put on some actual effective habits of prayer. So we're unlearning and relearning how to pray, and we're using the Lord's Prayer to do that. We, so we started with our Father, uh, who art in heaven, and uh, the idea that when we pray, we don't pray as slaves, we pray as sons, we pray as daughters, which should be life-changing and revolutionary to the way that you approach God. You approach as somebody who is known um, not just somebody who is in need. Um, hallowed be your name, that our Father, He is our Father, and He is close, and we are His children, but He is different. He's unique. He's pulled apart from the rest, and so when we speak to Him, it's a different kind of conversation. It's a close conversation, but it's different. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. What we're asking is that God would pull back the curtain um, so that people can see through this world of what we can see, feel, touch, uh, taste and experience and into the kingdom of God. That's the role of the church. It's not to bring something. It's just to pull back the curtains so that people can see into what matters most. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And so we're depending on God as we pray to answer our daily requests. Uh, and that's what we're trusting him for. We wish it were seasonal bread and monthly bread and weekly bread, but it's his daily bread that he's promised us. Um, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. That's what we talked about last week, that we all have debts. We all need forgiveness. And today, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So let's say the Lord's Prayer together this morning and just take all that information, if you've been here with us for all the weeks or most of the weeks, and bring it to the table, put it in the front of your mind as we pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Now hold on. So we've been trying to memorize this. We haven't been trying, but I'm just hoping that that's what's happening. Our children are memorizing it. I don't know if you've picked that up from your kids over in the kids' ministry, but my, my kids, uh, Jackson and Annabeth, they're obsessed with the Lord's Prayer. They want to say it all the time. It's the only prayer they want to say. So we're out to eat the other night, and uh, I was kind of tired of the Jesus, thank you for this food, amen. You know, usually I'm kind of quick and pray and get out. I came to eat, not pray necessarily, you know. And, uh, but I was trying to break us out of that rhythm, so I came up with a brilliant idea as we were at this restaurant. Why, why don't we do the Lord's Prayer? The kids are into it. They're loving it. And so they were like, yeah, 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 let's say the Lord's Prayer. Well, when you say the Lord's Prayer yourself, it, you can say it really fast. When you say it with other people, you got to kind of say it slow. And my children don't know volume. So they said the Lord's Prayer really slow and loud just in the middle of the restaurant. Uh, it was totally awkward. Amanda was a little embarrassed. I was just embracing the awkwardness. I loved it. It was fantastic. So if our kids can memorize this, I'm feeling like we should have picked it up so far. So we're going to try it again. We're going to close our eyes. If you need to cheat, just do one of these things and uh, look through your eyes. But hopefully you won't. I'm going to tell you the part that we're all going to get tripped up on is the forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. All right? If we mess it up, no big deal. This is Jesus' prayer. He he won't care, surely. Um, So, uh, all right, ready? Here we go. Everybody close your eyes. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread 
And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. Round of applause for you. That was very impressive. Anybody want to be honest and say that you peaked? Okay, good. God will forgive you if you lie in church. So take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. If this is the first time that you've been with us, or the first time in a while, the most important thing that's happening during these seven weeks is not that we're learning about prayer on Sunday morning. It's that Monday through Saturday we are trying to actually pray. Most of us know more than enough about prayer. It's just that we don't do it. And so what we've encouraged everyone to do is to, to add an hour onto your weekly prayer. So if you pray five minutes a week, you just keeping it real shallow. Bless me, bless my family, bless my kids. That's fantastic. We're just asking you to pray for an hour and five minutes. Uh, if you normally pray maybe an hour, kind of collect up all the different prayers through your week and it, it, it comes to an hour, then pray two hours during these seven weeks. And, and that's where the power is. I don't know if you ever get to these places in life where you read the scripture and you believe that the scripture is true, there's God's truth, but then there's the reality of your life, and the two things just don't necessarily come together. Like you read in the Bible, what does it say? Don't be anxious about anything. And, and so we believe that's true. We know we're not supposed to be anxious. We know that God can give us peace, according to Philippians chapter 4, and yet most of us are all twisted up with anxiety. It's not that we want to be anxious. It's just that somehow we can't bring those two things together. God's reality and our reality have a hard time. Well, what I'm learning during these seven weeks is that prayer is really the place that those two things come together, where the truth of God and your reality of life come together and your reality gets formed around God's word. It happens in prayer. So prayer is not just that here's what I need and I'm bringing it to God. There's some real spiritual work that's happening. And we're going to need that spiritual work for what we're talking about today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Read it with me again. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And here's the key phrase today, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now look down at verse 14. This is what Jesus says right after the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now Jesus is not saying that if you forgive, that is enough for you to be forgiven. That what gets you God's forgiveness is your forgiveness of other people. This doesn't earn you eternal forgiveness and the remission of your sin. What got you the wiping away, the erasing of sin was the sacrificial death of Jesus. His sinless life, the purity of his sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead, that pleasing offering to God is what made forgiveness of our sins possible. The test of sincerity that you have received that forgiveness is that you will be willing to forgive other people. We cannot in good conscience ask God for things that we are not willing to give to other people. So if you want to know if you are really a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've actually received these things and not just believed in them in a very general and religious way, do you forgive people? If you forgive people, 
your sins have been forgiven. It's the test of faith. It doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. It tests the sincerity of your faith. But in all these things that Jesus says, we know that he takes us forgiving other people very, 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 very seriously. So here's what I've learned. In my own experience, in all my study and preparation, locked away in some closet somewhere, forgiveness stinks. There's nothing harder than forgiving people who hurt us. Because it's the double beatdown. First, they hurt you. Beatdown number one. Then you have to humble yourself and let them off the hook. It is a double whammy to our pride, to our selfishness, to our self-centeredness. You will know exactly what is in you when you go to forgive people. So the question, we're not dealing with the question this morning, should we forgive? I mean, we've just read the words of Jesus, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So we get it. We're supposed to forgive. We'll put that question aside. I'm guessing that if you've come to church today, you're at least acknowledging that God's word has some authority. So we're supposed to forgive. The question I want to deal with is, can I forgive someone and still be mad at them? That seems like the more relevant question. We all know that we're supposed to forgive. But can I be mad at you? And can you be mad at me and still hold a grudge? That's the relevant question. That's what really needs to be uncovered this morning. Because here's, here's the reality of, for, for me. This may not be for you. I want to forgive, quotation marks, and I want to be mad at the same time. Can I do both? Can I forgive and still be mad? Those are the bigger questions, and I think it gets to the root of what you and I deal with when people hurt us. So, Luke chapter 10. Take your Bible, turn there. Luke chapter 10, real familiar story. Jesus is going to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now here's what you need to know 
to understand a little bit of this parable. Now, you could use this parable to bring out so many different points. But it's important to understand, in Jesus' culture, the first century, in Israel, where Jesus lived, breathed, walked, there were three main regions in what we would consider the Holy Land. There was Judea. Judea was down in the south. That was where the sophisticated people lived. That's where Jerusalem was. So you can think of maybe some of the, the fancier parts of Houston. That was Judea. Way up in the north, that's the, that's the, the blue-collar people. That's the less sophisticated people. That was a place called Galilee. That's actually where Jesus was raised and kind of based his ministry out of. And so you've got these two regions. And right in the middle is Samaria. Now the Jewish people that lived in Judea and and Galilee, they did not really care for the Samaritans uh, for a couple of reasons. And the Samaritans didn't care for the Jewish people. Uh, first, there was racial tension. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther King Jr., in one of his more famous, famous speeches, used this parable as kind of the foundation of his speech. And you can look it up online and you'd be pretty familiar with it. You would recognize some of the words. And so there's racial tension here between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And then there's also religious tension. They, they kind of had some similarities in their faith. Their foundations were kind of the same, but the, the way the specifics of those doctrines and the way the specifics of worship happened were different. So there was racial tension, there was religious tension, and, and then they just didn't like one another. You ever meet somebody and just right away you don't like them, you don't know why you don't like them, you're just your people radar goes off and you're just like, I do not like this person. They're a total jerk. And then you just hope to be proved right and not wrong, you know, or else you have to eat your words. Well, that was the way the Samaritans and the Jewish people, they just didn't like one another. Part of it came from the fact that they, they really originated, their peoples originated from the same foundation. It was the same family tree, but that family tree split somewhere long ago. And the Samaritans and the Jewish people would just take turns hurting one another. So when this Samaritan stops and sees this Jewish man beaten and bloodied and half dead on the side of the road. He has to overcome a lot to step in and help this man. Because this Jewish man who has been beaten represents a people who have hurt the Samaritan's people. Has offended the Samaritan's people. And so he has to overlook that offense and that's what it means to walk in forgiveness. You know that you're walking in forgiveness when you are willing to do good for someone, even though you don't necessarily believe that they deserve it. I remember when I was in college, it was over the summer, and I was kind of hanging out with some folks from my school. I didn't know everyone there. And this guy comes up to me who I didn't know. I, I kind of had seen him around and, and heard of him, but we didn't have, had, had never had any personal interaction. And he comes to me and he says, hey, uh, I just, I need to apologize to you. Which I'm thinking is weird because we don't know one another, you know. And he goes, I, I have been going around our college and just kind of saying some pretty terrible stuff about you. And I feel bad about that. And I want you to forgive me. Well, the first thing I thought was, I want to punch you in the face so bad right now. <laughs> but I didn't because of Jesus and stuff. The second thing I thought was, why are you talking about me? We don't know each other. And here, here's what I was like in college. I went to the small Bible college in Missouri because I wanted to be a minister and that made sense. And I wanted a bunch of student loans and so it made perfect sense, you know. And so, um, so it was real small and I was a transfer student. Now everyone knows that if you're a transfer student, there is no way that you can be cool. 
There's just not. You missed the welcome week thing, the orientation, and now you're just some weirdo who didn't figure it out sooner, you know? And so I was a transfer student, already weird. Plus, I had some good friends, but not a lot of friends. I was not popular. I was not involved in anything. Not one thing. Not one club. Not one sport. I was involved in zero things there. I didn't even go into the cafeteria. Not one time in the time that I spent at that university did I go into the cafeteria. One time, because I just didn't think I was going to have anybody to sit with, and I didn't be the want to be that weird guy that was like, hey, I don't know you. I'm going to sit here and eat my food, my sustenance right next to you. I just want to be that person. So I always went to like the snack place, got a pizza, went back and ate it in my dorm room by myself. Hello, what a weirdo and how sad was my existence at that time. So it just didn't make any sense to me in any realm of possibility that this guy would even care enough about me, positive or negative, to talk, have any conversations about me. But I did what you do in that situation, which is, yeah, sure, no problem. Don't worry about it. When the truth is, is I want him to worry about it a lot. Like, I still want him worrying about it right now. (laughs) But we know we're supposed to forgive, but that doesn't stop us from, from being mad. We know we're supposed to forgive, but it doesn't stop us from being hurt. That's why we're using the phrase, walking in forgiveness. Because it's a journey. There are going to be days that when you think about that thing, you're going to be just as mad about it, just as hurt, just as wounded as you were the day that it happened. But if you're walking in forgiveness, it means that you keep, even though you feel those emotions of anger and that frustration and that pain and that hurt, you keep on seeking the good of that person, even though they don't forgive it, they don't uh, deserve it. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing this section of Ephesians, which was a letter to help the Ephesian church get along with one another. See, forgiveness is a necessity if you're going to have any long-term relationships. If you're going to have friends for a long time, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. If you're going to be married a long time, if you're going to be married a week, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. If you're going to have children and grow into a mature adult-adult relationship with your kids one day, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. Any long-term relationship, including churches, forgiveness is a necessity. And this is what he says in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now he starts in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, and then he echoes it with, and tender-hearted. There's kind of two sides of, two ways to explain one thing. A tender heart means a soft heart, it means a warm heart. And we need to be people who have tender and soft hearts. We need to be people who are warm to one another, and if you're going to walk in forgiveness, you have to have a soft heart. See, but the problem with having a soft heart is you're more vulnerable. When you have a soft heart, you're more at risk for pain. So what has happened to many of us is we've been hurt somewhere along the way, and it did not feel good, and so we just hardened our heart. We went a little cynical, we got bitter, 
And the idea was, is I'm going to keep people at a distance so that I don't experience that kind of pain again, which is partly effective. It's also very destructive. Because God has made us as human beings to be together. You ever try to go on vacation by yourself? It might sound super appealing right now, doesn't it? Yeah, like I would like a week away from you. That would be amazing. You know, that's maybe what wives are saying to husbands right now. But try it. Try to go on a vacation by yourself. After about 36 hours, you'll be ready to come home. You'll cut your time short. Because it's people that make our lives rich. People ask me all the time, what's your favorite part about Bayou City Fellowship? We're living an incredible story here. I don't know if you're aware of that. Maybe you just show up and come to church. But two years old, uh, we're living an amazing story. And so people hear about it and they say, what's your favorite part? And I always say, my favorite part is the people. The stories of the people, transformation of the people, the generosity of the people, their willingness to, to work hard and put themselves last and put others first. My favorite thing about Bayou City Fellowship is the people. What's your least favorite thing about Bayou City Fellowship? The people. <laughs> and that's not just here. That's true of your job. The people you work with, they make your life rich. The people you work with, they make your life miserable. Your family, your family enriches your life. Does anyone make you more frustrated than your family? No. It's just the reality of living as human beings on this planet, tainted and twisted up by sin. We are both the best and worst part of all of this. So if you harden your heart so that you don't experience the worst part, you're also hardening your heart to the best part. So you have to stay tender-hearted, even when you have pain, even when you've been wounded, even when they hurt you and they knew what they were doing and they did it anyway. Somehow you have to pray to God to keep your heart soft. Oh, you'll turn hard and you won't be hurt, but your life will not be rich either. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, forgiveness here, this word, it means pardoned. And that's what it means to forgive. It means that we were sinners. Now we're saints. Jesus has made us saints. If you've not trusted Jesus, if you've not followed Jesus, you're still a sinner. But you can be a saint when you leave today just based on what Jesus has already done for you. But we're saints. We still sin occasionally, but our sins have been forgiven. They've been pardoned. It doesn't mean that we're innocent. We're guilty. We did it. We sinned for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're guilty, but we've been pardoned. Meaning our guilt has been taken away from us. Our guilt has been removed from us. Our guilt has been casted away. So we're, we're, we're guilty, but we're free from the punishment of that guilt. And so what the scripture is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4, what the apostle Paul is urging them to, to bring into their relationships is, listen, you've been pardoned, so let your pardon overflow into other people and you pardon them when they hurt you. It doesn't mean that they're, they're innocent. And that's worst case scenario for many of us is to take these wounds which we have, this pain that we have, these wrongs that were done to us, and then to say, oh, it's no big deal. It's like it never happened. It feels wrong to do that. And listen, you don't have to do that. God is not asking you to pretend like the pain that has happened to you never happened to you. He's just saying, I pardoned you Now let that pardon work through you and you lay it down 
for someone else. Then look at what he says in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, what we just read is still in view. You remember this was a letter that Paul wrote to this church. So it didn't have verses and it didn't have numbers. It was just a letter in the same way that you would write a letter. So they ended one paragraph and they moved on to the therefore. So these two things are very connected. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he connects forgiveness to imitating God. See, we can't imitate God's omnipresence. You know, we can't be everywhere like God is. We can't imitate his omniscience. We can't know everything that God knows all at the same time. We can't imitate his omnipotence. He's all powerful. He could do whatever we want. We are bumping into that all the time. We can't do what we want, even if when we want to do it. We can't imitate those things, but we can imitate him when we forgive. And he says, as beloved children, you ever look at a child and when you look at their face, you see the face of one of their parents? When you forgive, people see your father in heaven. That's the image of the father coming out in the sons and the daughters when we forgive. In fact, I would say that you're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. I mean, nothing is as self-emptying as forgiving someone who's hurt us. And what does it say about Jesus? That he emptied himself. And he took the cross on our behalf. It's his imitating his forgiveness leads us to forgive. And so what that means is if we're imitating him, we need to stay in touch with how we've been forgiven. You know, it's easy, especially when you come to church. And if you've only been to church at least twice, I feel like you kind of automatically assume this like church persona. I mean, this could be your second time here. And, you know, already maybe you feel kind of religious, like you know what to do. And here's when we stand. And here's when we sit. It's just like, it's just real easy to become a church person. Well, when that goes on and on, sometimes we look at forgiveness as things that have happened to us in the past. That's something that happened in the past. You know, I was real rebellious in high school or I, I was real wild in college or I did X, Y, and Z in my early 20s. And, and thankfully God brought me out of that. And it's easy for some of us to look at our forgiveness as a past thing. Well, when somebody hurts you in the present, if your forgiveness has only occurred in the past, you're not going to want to forgive them in the present. It's like you go to work and you have a job and you pay your bills and you, you know, do all those kinds of things. And then somebody that you know and cares, you, you care about as a friend of yours, they come to you and they're like, hey, can I borrow a bunch of money? I can't pay my rent. I can't do that. And, they, and you, what do you want? Your, your flesh wants to say, no, no, I do not want to help you. Why? Because you don't need help like that. You're not rich, but you have to go to work and you have to work hard and you have to save and you have to budget and you have to be wise. You've been doing all that and they haven't been doing that. And so you don't want to give. Why? Because you don't feel like you have that need. So you don't want to give that need to someone else. Well, if you feel like you don't need forgiveness that you used to a long, long time ago and your forgiveness came in the past, you're not going to want to forgive anybody in the future or in the present. But that's what happened last week. It's forgive us our debts, meaning our present tense debts. Listen, your rebellious days may have started in high school, but I guarantee you they continue on to this day. And you may not be rebelling against your parents, but you are in some way rebelling against God, and so am I. Forgiveness should be fresh to us on a daily and weekly and regular basis, and we need to stay in touch with the forgiveness that we have received so then we can imitate God and give forgiveness to other people, even though they don't deserve it 
Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So it says that Jesus, he gave himself up for us, which is what makes forgiveness possible. For forgiveness to occur in any relationship, someone in that relationship has to give themselves up. And listen, it's always the person who's been hurt. It's meaningless if the person who did the hurting offers themselves up. There's no pain there. There's no pain in I hurt you and I feel bad about that. That's why apologies are usually real hollow to us. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you were hurt. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you're going to forgive people, just like Jesus, you will have to give yourself up. You will have to humble yourself. You will have to fight the pain and go low and do good. You do have to give yourself up. And then look at what it says. Look look, look at what it says next. And gave himself up for us a fragrant offering. So when Jesus gave himself up for us on the cross, it pleased God. God was honored by what Jesus did. And when you forgive people, God is honored by that. Listen, I so desperately want to to know that when I do the hard work of forgiveness, God is receiving it. Because it's not enough just to give forgiveness to that person. Because we feel like they're not going to appreciate it. They're not going to appreciate the pain and the struggle and the fight that we had to go through to offer them that forgiveness. So it's helpful for me to know that when I forgive somebody else, God is receiving it as well. In fact, he's even more than receiving it. Look at what it says in this last line. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's what that means. It means... When Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross, we received the benefit of that sacrifice. But the sacrifice was not to us. What does it say? Who was it to? To God. The cross was for us, but it was not to us. You benefited from Jesus' sacrifice, his death, the torture, the crown of thorns, we were the beneficiaries of that. But he laid that sacrifice down at the feet of his father, which is fantastic news for me today. Because listen, that person who you're going to have to forgive, where you currently still hold the grudge against, they don't deserve your forgiveness. Best case scenario is that they've come to you broken by what they've done to you and in humility and sincerity have offered a sincere and meaningful and ongoing apology. Most of us never get that. Most of the grudges that we carry, the people who hurt us don't even know that they hurt us. So as you feel that pain bump up against our need to forgive people, you're not going to want to lay that forgiveness at their feet as a sacrifice to them. And I think the scripture is telling us you don't have to. You can say to God, I'm very still presently active, tense, mad at this person, but I know that you're asking me to forgive them. And so I am going to forgive them, but I'm laying this forgiveness as a sacrifice at your feet. And they are the beneficiaries of it. So really, us forgiving other people is an overflow of your commitment and affection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many of us, that will be the only motivation and reason you ever have to forgive that person. 
they may never come and humble themselves before you. You'll have to forgive for Jesus' sake. This week I was reading about forgiveness. You know, there's actually health benefits to forgiving people. Stanford University uh, created this thing called the Stanford Forgiveness Project, and they tracked people for a long time and a lot of years uh, to record the health benefits of forgiving people. There actually are some. Uh, it lowers your blood pressure when you forgive, which makes sense because when you're mad at somebody, you can feel your, your blood getting hot. Well, that's your blood pressure rising. And uh, so the next time your you know, doctor says you have high blood, blood pressure, just say, I forgive you, and see if it, see if it works. There are health benefits, lowers your blood pressure. Also, what they found in their research, which is, this is amazing, that when you experience pain that comes along with forgiving people, your body goes into fight or flight. You know that theory, that mechanism that when you're in a life-threatening situation, your body responds and you either fight to preserve your life or you try to run away to preserve your life? Well, these researchers, they found out that when you are under the strain and, and stress of being hurt, emotionally and mentally, you're doing that same thing. You're either fighting or flighting, which explains so much of what goes on in my mind when I have been hurt. You know, man, when you're having that conversation with that person that hurt you in your mind, are you not like the best speaker ever? <laughs> you are just the best arguer. You know exactly what to say, when to say it. It's unbelievable. And listen... Don't ever get in my mind because I can be mean in my mind. I can do some things in my mind, say some things that I would not do outside of my mind. And you know that. You, can, you just have that fight with that person all in your mind. Or you try to, to do the opposite. You run away from it. You try to keep it out of your mind, try to distract yourself with a hundred different things to try to ignore it. And that's, for most of us, all we have ever known when we've been hurt having that mental fight or that mental fleeing. I was playing hide and seek with my kids this week and uh, they're terrible at it. They're not in here. They don't listen to the podcast. So they're just awful because, you know, they can never find me. And um, it's kind of good for me because I can go get like 10 minutes of alone time, you know, which is, which is nice. Uh, so I was playing with them two days ago and, and I was hiding and uh, I was just watching them. You know, I like to watch my, my children just, uh, I don't know, it's fun. And they make me happy. And, and so uh, I'm watching them and I'm hiding. I got a good hiding spot where they can't see me, but I can see them. And the reason that they never find me is because they only ever look in the same places. So when they come into Annabeth's room, they only look in the closet and behind the door. That's the only two places they look. So if you hide anywhere in her room beside the closet or the door, they'll never find you. You can lay there and crouch there forever and ever. They'll just never stumble upon you. In Jackson's room, they'll check the closet under his bed. Those, in their minds, that's the only place that you can hide. So if you hide anywhere else in his room besides those two, those two places, they will never find you, ever. Now, some of us wonder why we still have this grudge, this pain. After years and years, the offense is gone. I mean, it's, it's over, it's moved, but the pain is still there. I think it's because mentally we just keep going to the same places. And I want you to hear me this morning. Listen, that person that hurt you, they caused the wound. But your mind infected it. It was their fault that you were wounded in the first place. 
But your mind and your imagination and mine is what keeps it open and keeps it infected and keeps it front and center in our lives. I mean, think about the power of your mind when you've been hurt. Have you ever once imagined best case scenario? No. Has your mind ever once led you when you feel that pain and that sting of hurt? Has it ever said, it's just a misunderstanding? They didn't mean it. No. Your mind says they meant it and they'll do it again and they'll do it again and they'll do it again. And here's what you need to say. And you'll never say that. And it all stays contained in our minds. Listen, if you want that grudge and that pain and that wound to go away, if you want the balm of forgiveness to come to your life, you got to find a new place for your mind to go. If you keep going back to the same places, you will keep getting the same results. And listen, an open wound is Satan's playground. You ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Your marriage under stress right now? I'm sure and confident that one of you is wounded. And Satan is having the time of his life using your wound. Luke chapter 10, back to the Good Samaritan. The most powerful thing to me, as I was reading it this week, is that this Samaritan, all that racial tension, religious tension, listen, look at the world, watch the news. Is there anything more damaging than racial and religious tension? There's just not. And the Samaritan and Jewish people, they had all of it and they had a bunch of it. And he treats this beaten man, not according to what his people had done, not according to the wrongs that had been done to the Samaritans over the years. He treats this person according to forgiveness and not the pain. How revolutionized would our lives be if we said the right thing, which is I forgive you, And then as we walked in forgiveness, we treated people according to the forgiveness and not according to the pain. According to the forgiveness, which we've laid at the feet of God because they don't deserve it. Because of God, I'm going to offer this forgiveness. Because of God, I'm going to treat you according to the forgiveness. Because of what God has done in my life, I'm going to pardon you where all I want to do is just punish you. I want to freeze you out. I want to freeze myself out. I want to put some distance here. I want to stick it to you the way you've stuck it to me. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to choose to treat you according to forgiveness and not according to my pain. I think over time, you start walking in that forgiveness. You'll find that the forgiveness comes easier. Listen, some of you have been wounded in such a way you'll always remember it. I, uh, as an exercise, I, uh, it's not healthy, don't do this, but I, I thought, I, I want to know who I've forgiven and, and, and who, who has hurt me, really, what I, who has hurt me from my earliest days, who has hurt me, and I started listing out some names, and I got about five names in, I wasn't even out of elementary school yet, and I could just feel the burden, the burden of what those wounds 
weigh on my soul. I still remember. The idea that we can forgive and forget, I'm not sure that we can. So if you've been hurt, I, I guess I can promise you that the next time that you think about that hurt, it will still hurt. It will. But you walk in forgiveness. Not because they deserve it, because they might not. But because it's a sacrifice to God. It's a fragrant aroma. And if for no other reason, you forgive because he has forgiven us. You know, my least favorite part about being hurt by somebody is the isolation that you feel. You know what I'm talking about? When you're hurt, you just feel all alone. You know, you can have a hundred people around you who love you, support you, got your back through thick and thin, and one thing can happen and you feel totally alone. Maybe you're a boss at work and you get 50 emails that are like, I love working for you, you're the best in the whole world, and you get one complaint and it's like those other 50 don't even exist. Being hurt isolates us. And I know many of us tonight, when we start today, when we start thinking about that grudge, we feel all alone in it, like nobody can understand. And I just want you to leave today knowing that somebody does understand. So I brought a list with me, if you don't mind. Has someone ever spoken evil of you? Jesus knows that. Has someone ever falsely accused you? He knows that too. You ever been rejected? What about betrayed? He's been there. Someone ever talked to your friends about you instead of talking to you? People did that to Jesus all the time. They would come and talk to his disciples instead of dealing directly with him. I'm sure that got annoying after about the fifth time. You ever felt like someone was trying to trap you? Jesus knows that feeling. You ever feel like someone in your life is just waiting for you to make a mistake so they can point it out, so they can pounce on it, so they can bring you down one level, they can get you off your high horse, they can just uh, cut you to see if you can bleed? Jesus knows that. Your family ever turned on you? Jesus' family turned on him. You ever had a friend throw you under the bus? You thought that they were going to stand with you and then the heat got turned up and they abandoned you. That was the last thing that Jesus experienced from his friends before he was arrested, beaten, and crucified. And if you feel alone, all alone in your pain this morning, because somebody has done you wrong, you are not alone. Jesus didn't have email, but I think he gets the pit in your stomach when you push open. You're not alone. He is our high priest who sympathizes with us. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And there are a lot of ways to approach the Lord's Supper. And so if those who are helping us serve would come and take their places 
There's a lot of way to, ways to come to the Lord's table, the bread, the body of Jesus, and the cup, the blood of Jesus. Sometimes we come remembering the, the pain that Jesus went through, the crown of thorns, the, the nails uh, marks in his hands and in his feet. Sometimes we come remembering that. Sometimes we come remembering his love. Sometimes we come remembering his sacrifice. But uh, I want you to come, if you are in, uh, if you have a grudge against somebody, if somebody has hurt you, I want you to come today and to rip off the piece of the bread and hear the broken body of Jesus, that in the same way that you are broken today, he has been broken and you're not alone. And when you dip that bread into the cup, the same way you have bled because someone has cut you with their words or with their betrayal or with their actions or with their negligence, or ignorance, he is bled to. And so you come and take the Lord's Supper today knowing that you're not alone, that the one who saves you sympathizes with you and he's with you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that you would make this time holy as we honor your son. For your son was wounded. by his stripes we are healed so we receive our healing today through the bread and the cup in Jesus name Amen